morning. And welcome to all of you. And I guess welcome to me and Greg, too. <laughs> um, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, I'm really happy to be here with all of you this morning. It's just so wonderful to see so many uh, familiar faces and some new faces. And I look forward to getting to talk with all of you, hopefully, at some point. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Konjun Roshi, abbot of Houston Zen Center, for inviting me to give this talk. So today I want to talk about um, how we can practice with our karma. Recently, I heard a series of teachings on karma and dependent co-arising from one of my teachers, Gil Fransdahl, and he talked about practicing non-reactivity. And so, of course, when we sit, we get to what we get to see is most our reactivity, not our non-reactivity. <laughs> non-reactivity is very hard to see. Reactivity is much easier, fortunately. Uh, and our karmic habits, uh, which, and they're very uh, deeply interrelated, our karmic tendencies, our karmic habits, and our reactivity. Uh, so one way of framing practice is as releasing or letting go or relaxing our habitual patterns of clinging, aversion, and delusion. This is not so easy. Uh, so here's an old Zen story about Bird's Nest Roshi. Uh, he was called Bird's Nest Roshi, Roshi's teacher, um, great teacher, because uh, he sat, he meditated high up in a tree. It's called Bird's Nest Roshi. <laughs> so once a government official asked Bird's Nest Roshi, what is the teaching of Buddhism? Bird's Nest Roshi recited a verse from the Dhammapada, which is one of the earliest Buddhist texts. He said, not to commit wrong actions, but to do all good ones and keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. When the government heard this, he was not impressed. And he said, any child of three knows that. Bird's Nest Roshi said, any three-year-old child may know it, but even an 80-year-old can't do it. Isn't that like that? <laughs> um, so uh, this verse from the, from the Dhammapada, um, uh, as I said, one of the earliest Buddhist texts is actually where the three pure precepts developed from. I vow to refrain from all evil. I vow to do all that is good. I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. So you can say that these really are the heart of Buddhist teachings right there. Um, yeah. But it's not, and, and I think many of us know this, but we can forget it because it's so simple. It's so basic. And our lives tend to be very complicated because our karmic lives are complicated. The teachings are very simple, very direct, but we're complicated. So um, it's not enough to know something or to just hear it. Uh, we know all kinds of things that ought to help us or could help us, but if we don't do it, 
if we don't practice it, it won't actually help. So how do we do it? And what does it mean to do it? What are we doing? And if even an 80-year-old can't do it, what makes it so difficult? Uh, so today I want to talk about Hongzhu's practice instructions. Uh, the first section of this text resonated very deeply with me when I read it a number of years ago. And at the time, I could not begin to express what it meant or what it meant to me. Um, but I knew it was important and it became a sort of a koan for me over the years. Um, my teacher, Sojin Roshi, says, um, I study to verify my practice which is really wonderful. It's not like I studied to get something. I studied to like test it out. Like how's my practice going? So it was wonderful to re-engage with this teaching again. So Hong Zhe, who wrote the practice instructions, lived in 12th century China, and he was abbot of Mount Tiantong. This is where Dogen's teacher Ru Jing taught uh, in the in Japanese version in the list of ancestors, that's Tendo Nyojo, the one right before Dogen. Uh, Hong Zhe also wrote a well-known collection of koans called the Book of Serenity. Uh, and Hong Zhe's writings had a deep influence on Dogen. So I'm gonna focus on just the first few sentences of these practice instructions uh, because they're sort of a summary statement of the whole text. The field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in a clear circle of brightness. We'll read it again. The boundless field of emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. So the field of boundless emptiness is true reality, good in nature, awakened mind. We don't create awakened mind. We don't create good in nature. We certainly don't create true reality. Uh, it is what exists from the very beginning. It's not separate from us. It's not outside. It's not something we do or something we can grasp, even though we try very hard to do just that. So Hong Zhu writes beautifully about uh, his experience of awakened mind, this clear circle of brightness wandering into the center of the circle of wonder. But how do we realize this for ourselves? Uh, you must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. And I think this is exactly what caught my attention years ago, because so many of the teachings in Zen are about letting go, releasing, relaxing, just drop off body and mind, just. <laughs> 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 oh, 
Okay, I'm not alone in this. <laughs> um, and I remember I think uh, my maybe my second practice period at Tassahara many years ago. Uh, Tenshin Roshi Reb Anderson was teaching, and at the time, uh, his teachings kind of revolved around uh, meet whatever arises with complete relaxation. It's a wonderful teaching. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> and I think it had a particular challenge for me in a resonance because I'd been trying to relax since I'd been a kid. You know, I grew up pretty tight, tight in body, um, speech, being very careful with my speech and certainly in mind. Uh, and I, I managed to achieve appearing relaxed <laughs> quite convincingly. <laughs> But the experience was um, uh, intermittent for quite some time. So, uh, and you know, this is our life of practice. That we're we're always we're always trying. We're always doing our best to do something. And then we get to find out how the trying doesn't work. But if we don't make that effort, nothing will happen. So, you know, this purify, cure, grind down, brush away, that resonated with my own experience of practice. It's not easy. I'm working at it. I'm like really hanging in there with it. So, yeah. So what is karma? What hunters, but these apparent tendencies that are fabricated, into apparent habits, these are our karmic habits. So karma means action, acts of body, speech, and mind. What we do, what we say, and what we say to ourselves, what we think. Uh, and these are all interrelated. You know, when we really pay attention, we can see that when we think there are particular patterns of um, energy or holding in our bodies, and you know, when our bodies get tight, we start thinking in certain ways. And it's all it's all very interrelated. And we often think that we can get away with just thinking something if we don't do anything about it, but it still has an impact. You know, still planting seeds for the future. You know, we're still reinforcing these old patterns or habits. Uh, so there are um, both wholesome and unwholesome karmic actions, but, um, but the, and all of them bind us in some way, but the ones that we usually focus on in practice are the unwholesome ones, of course. And also, uh, whereas karma uh, just means action, the Buddha specifically focused on intentional actions rather than involuntary actions like a sneeze or a startle reflex or accidents. He focused on intentional actions because those are where we have uh, some volition. Those are where we can do something. We can make a change. We can do something differently. So changing habits of any kind um, requires a fair amount of effort and persistence. 
Um, there's actually a lot of books out now about habit change. This is a big topic, like atomic habits and you know, Zen habits. And, yeah. <laughs> um, I read in one place, it takes 21 days to establish, to, to create a habit and 66 days to have it stick. I'm like, okay, those are interesting numbers. <laughs> but it points to practice. It points to consistent, ongoing, persistent practice. Doing something over and over again, coming back until it sticks. So... One learning that I had about habit change was many years ago when I, at some point I decided that it would be much better to take a different way home, make the last turn toward my house in a different direction for various reasons that you don't need to know about. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was a total no-brainer. It's just like, oh, it would be so much easier for parking and for safety if I came in this end of the street instead of that end of the street. No resistance, no old karmic patterns. I had physical karmic patterns about going that way all the time, the old way, which was to go in whichever way was closer. And I said, okay, I'm going to do that. It took me two weeks. First time, for the first few days, I didn't even remember until I came out the next day. And I'm like, oh, I didn't want to exit this end of the street. And then I remembered it after I'd missed it. And then I slammed on the brakes <laughs> safely. And then finally, after about two weeks, I could actually remember that. And that's something I did once or twice a day was leave my house and drive back. So that wasn't the way that I thought of myself as being able to learn things. I thought, I see something I want to do, I make a decision, and I do it. And that's how a fair number of things came to me in my life. But things that were habits were different. So, um, and of course, our deep old karmic habits that are really sticky and the ones that we get caught in again and again tend to be the very ones that developed early in our life for very good reasons. And at the time, it generally felt not just like coping, but more like survival. And a lot of other stuff kind of got on top of it over time. So they're hard to see and they're hard to work with. So letting go of these habits is, is really difficult because we often don't see that there's any element of choice in them. They're like, they become automatic or they're out of our consciousness or it's like, oh my God, how did I get here again? We actually have no idea. Um, so a lot of our practice is expanding our capacity for and our realms of choice and possibility. And one summer at Tassahara, this, this came home to me in a, in a very simple but very striking way. It was hot. It was the end of summer. And summers at Tassahara are long, long, hot. You're outside and working hard all the time. So this is August. It was a heat wave. It had been above 100 degrees for about a week. It wasn't cooling off very much at night. Nobody was getting much sleep. And there was, 
I passed someone, and of course, I have no idea what they said or did now. It doesn't matter. But it was something for which I would have had a reaction. And I didn't. And a minute later, I noticed that there had been a little tiny voice in the back of my mind going, you know, I just don't have the energy for this. (laughs) (laughs) Who said that? Where did that come from? That's not something I have any choice over. Uh Uh-huh. So maybe when I get upset about something, there's actually some volitional action, some karmic action that is leading me in that direction. That was a big wake-up for me because I had studied psychology. You know, so I thought I had some handle on my mind and this was and myself. And so it's like, oh, I don't think I'm who I thought I was. And this was just such a small thing, but it really stayed with me because I, I wasn't called to change as a result of this. I didn't have to let go of anything. It was just like, well, I have way more choice and way more responsibility for myself, for my acts of body, speech, and mind than I thought I did. Okay. Um, so... Um, I've been reflecting on these instructions, purify, cure, grind down, and brush away. And I want to share with you, they're not further elucidated in the text. They're just put out there, like, just drop off body and mind. (laughs) Each of us has to uh, taste that for ourselves. So... These are some of the ways that I've been working with these. Like I haven't used these words specifically, but I went, oh, I know what, now I know what these mean. So these are, this is what comes to me. This is my understanding. And I really invite you not to just take, oh, this is what, this is what it means. This is what I should do. But how does this resonate for you? How is it alive in your practice? What resonates? What doesn't? What questions do you have? So to start at the other end. Brush away. Um, I think that's like, just come back to the breath. Again and again. And brush away anything extra. Brush away these karmic tendencies. Just come back to the breath. Simplify. Just don't get complex. Just be simple. Just come back. But in order to do that, we have to be clear about what we're doing. You know, it's like the wheat and the chaff. Which are you brushing away? It's like, actually, it's a little easier to to brush away the wheat and keep the chaff some days, you know. (laughs) So uh, being clear on intention, not being distracted, and, and actually part of distraction, to not be distracted, is to discern clearly when we're veering off. It's like, it's one thing to have a thought arise and it's another thing to be like, oh, I wonder what's for lunch. I really like lasagna. <laughs> and I it was... <laughs> so thoughts arise, fine and fine, but to notice, you know, so brushing away, oops, come back, oops, come back. Um, 
So, and this is not just on the cushion, this is in our everyday life. And so I go on talking to somebody and we know it's a difficult conversation and our intention is to just really listen. And suddenly we find ourselves like, wait, what was your intention? You know? So what's the intention? What are you doing right here, right now? Why are you here? Keeping your eye on that. That really helps with knowing what you're letting go of because it reconnects us with our deeper intention. I've learned a lot from watching um, people train their dogs because there's language involved, but the dog doesn't understand the language exactly. So there's no explanation for the dog. The dog's trying to figure out, hmm, what do you want? <laughs> I want a treat. <laughs> And one of the things in particular that's been helpful is um, watching a dog learn how to drop it. You know, drop a look at you. <laughs> drop it. Um, so there's a very subtle doing in letting go. It's very subtle. But getting a taste of what it's like to let go rather than just coming to the end of the thought pattern and returning. Like, oh, can I? What is letting go? You know, exploring that. When you let go, see if you can like notice that. Not, not hold on to it, but without interference. It's like, oh, there's actually a little bit of relaxation. So. So the next one is uh, grind down. Sounds so serious and so heavy. It kind of is. Um, uh, Shutu says in the Song of the Grass Hut, meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instruction, bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. That's how I hear grind down. Just don't give up. Um, when it gets hard or uncomfortable or even scary, um, frustrating, don't give up. Rather than digging a whole bunch of shallow wells, just keep going on one deep one. Um, so this is practicing with both um, virya and kashanti. Virya is effort or energy, this bright yes, you know, I will. And kashanti is patience or tolerance or forbearance. And on the paramitas, the perfections, they're kind of a pair and they need to be in balance. If they're out of balance, then we can just like grit our teeth and bear it in a way that's not actually helpful. It's just reinforcing um, old habits of like, you know, digging in deeper. And it just wears those grooves deeper. And if we're too loose, and like, oh, I'll just be patient with my mind and wait for it to settle down, then it's like giving up on building a fire. You know, it's like, 
balancing and again this is learning about our own karmic habits oh i tend to go a little too far this way so i'm going to try balance it on this side you know, i need to watch out for just you know bearing down and be a little kinder a little more patient or vice versa A while back, I was on a retreat, and there was this really yucky state of confusion and fogginess, and it wasn't physically uncomfortable so much, but mentally and emotionally, it was yucky and, and old, and I recognized that. You know? And usually, I would just, you know, I have all kinds of ways to get away from that, both in practice and in ordinary life. And I was just like, no, I'm going to hang out with this. I'm just going to stay here, not try to hold on, but just let it be exactly as it is. And, you know, I thought that would mean that I was being good and it would go away very quickly. I was following directions, right? It lasted about two and a half days. But since I was on retreat, that was a long two and a half days. <laughs> And it didn't, it didn't get worse. It didn't get better. I got familiar with it. It wasn't, I got to see it. It's like opening the closet you're afraid to open or that drawer with all the things or your email that you haven't looked at in a while. You know, it's like, oh, okay, so that's what this is. You know, and it just kind of passed. No big insights. It just, and it was like, oh, so I don't actually have to do something for this to pass. There is impermanence. It will pass. Okay. Then sometimes just being with it is like that. It's, there's no revelations, but we learn that we can do things that we think we can't. And that really develops a deep faith in our practice. Because we have the undeniable experience because we've been there for it. It didn't just happen. So I did that. I remember those days. I did that, you know? And we've all had experiences like that, you know, we stuck it out. Um, but maybe there's something different needed, you know, not just hanging in there, not just persevering. So inquiry, cure, specifically cure. Um, cure is about care and concern and concern for troubles, for afflictions. So this one really acknowledges the difficulties that we have and um, paying appropriate attention to what's arising in the right way and restore, being restored to wholeness. And I think the image of cure is really appropriate because the Buddha was often called the great healer, the great doctor. Um, and he offered medicine to alleviate suffering. So, uh, the Buddha spoke about, um, connected with his awakening, pulling out the arrow that is hard to perceive. You know, he'd struggled for six years, intensively, but it wasn't until he saw the arrow that was hard to perceive that he was able to pull it out and be free from, from suffering. Um, 
So we had to have this clear understanding of what causes the suffering. It's clinging, it's um, thirst or tanha, attachment, um, or compulsion. It's compulsion, yeah. Um, in order to know how to respond to it. So part of um, opening ourselves to being healed, to being cured, is are we actually willing to let this go? Are we willing to let go of our old karmic habits? Sometimes that's a question. It's like, I'll die if I'm not strong, or I'll die if I'm alone, or whatever it is. Yeah, so getting getting intimate with that, seeing all those little tendrils of holding, clinging. And there are many ways that we can support this um, possibility of healing, of awakening, by cultivating and practicing all the, um, the wholesome, the virtuous qualities that are listed in Buddhism, like love and kindness and compassion and equanimity and patience, generosity. There are so many lists of these. Gratitude. And all of these help soften our minds and nourish our hearts so that we have some beneficial foundation to rely on so that when we let go of some of these karmic habits, there's something deeper there to catch us rather than our fears of the uh, the abyss. (coughs) We have uh, Stellar's Jays at Tassajara. We don't know Stellar's Jays. They're... Corvids that seem to be somewhere between blue jays and crows or ravens. They're very smart um, and they're very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And they really like uh, Tassahara and they like the food <laughs> of Tassahara. And they are, um, they, they fly really close. I've had one take something out of my mouth as I was biting it <laughs> more than a couple times. Uh, they'll like fly by and just touch you with their wing to let you know. You know <laughs> there. <laughs> and uh, one summer they were really bad. And they, they, um, they're a problem for the guests, you know, and we don't like to encourage them. We don't want to encourage the wildlife in any way. Um, and we tell guests to please be careful, but of course they are not nearly as alert as one would need to be. So one summer, um, Dashika tried to get rid of the seller's jay. So we had this elaborate way of like having a little line of food and luring them into the shop area, but shutting the door and catching them, putting them in pillowcases and driving them out to (laughs) Salinas, which was two hours away. (laughs) Regrettably, that was only about, what, 50, 75 miles, something like that. Um, It was a long time. It was a, you know, that takes two hours to drive there. (laughs) After a while, I started thinking, I'm not sure this is making a difference. I think they're coming back. <laughs> so they started tagging them with a little bit of red tape on their ankles before taking them out. They were back almost before the people who drove them out. 
So we gave up on that one. <laughs> um, but recently during the pandemic, when we were shut down and, and it was winter and there weren't so many students around and we certainly weren't eating outside and all of these things, um, the Stellar's Jays went away because we weren't feeding them. <laughs> so you know, if we're not feeding our habits, they go away. They don't run away. It's just like there's nothing of interest for me here. Uh, and of course, now that there's more students and there, you know, there's no, there weren't any guests last summer, so they're all sitting outside and, oh, they're back. <laughs> they are back. I don't know where they went for all the time. It was really nice having them gone. All the songbirds came in. We saw so many birds we'd never seen before in the ballad. But, you know, when the food's around, back and interested again and yeah so uh, and finally uh, purify so what does it mean to purify um, purification in Mahayana Buddhism means uh, non-duality non-separation uh, Sojin Roshi's name Sojin means essence of purity and it doesn't mean that he was like uh, a saint who never did anything. It, it means that his mind is pure. You know, that he, he can abide in non-discrimination. He can see the non-separation of self and other and just be completely available. This is the essence of purity. So this is the ultimate remedy is to purify our minds. So when, when the instruction is purify your mind, it doesn't mean, you know, to get out the, the soap and the scrub cloth and try to, like, scrub out. It really is this um, letting go. But the practice is that we can practice seeing things as non-separate. We can practice seeing them as interdependent, or as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, the interbeing of all things. So... I'm sitting up here and it looks like I'm giving a talk, but we're all just doing a talk together. There's no talk without all of you. There's certainly not this talk without all of you. We're co-creating this together or widening out a little bit. There is no Houston Zen Center without this place and the teacher, all the teachers and, the, um, and all of you. And this practice together. We all make this. If you all went away, there wouldn't be one. And if you were all here in this building, but there was no teaching and no practice, there wouldn't be one either. So there are many ways that we can practice seeing this so that our minds are soft and open and we're available to this. Um, so there's a, an old story about uh, Milarepa, a Tibetan saint, and Milarepa lived high up in the Himalayas. He was a hermit. He lived in a little cave, and uh, his, he's often depicted with green skin because he apparently lived on a diet of nettles. He went out foraging nettles. I guess like carrots, it turned his skin. You know, <laughs> <not> <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, one day Milarepa went out probably foraging for nettles. <laughs> and when he got back, his cave was full of demons. Sometimes this happens. <laughs> Hasn't it happened to you? you know, it's a perfectly nice day, and my mind is full of demons. Started off good, you know, there's demons. Mm -hmm. So he, um, he tried various things. First, he, he shouted at them and told them to go away, and some of them ran away. And then uh, he ignored them, and a few sulked off. And then he uh, performed spells to try to banish them, and a few went. And then he tried to appease them by making offerings. He said, oh, I think these are um, spirits of the place. I should make you offerings. And some were appeased and left. Um, but each time there were still some left until he was really down to the toughest, scariest demons. <laughs> and, um, and finally he said, okay, demons. So we're going to have to live together, looks like. So from time to time, maybe you'll come by and we'll have a little chat. Okay. They all fled. <laughs> they all vanished. So this is the, the letting go, the softening, the non-resistance. Another version of this story, the ending is... Uh, Milarepa puts his head inside the demon's mouth. Yeah. When we turn fully toward our deepest fears, that thing that's so stuck and we're just completely open to it, it dissolves. There's not a thing there. There's no thing there. It's just a collection of feelings, images, sensations, which have an impact. But when we really look to see what's there, there is no thing there. So that's purity. So these approaches aren't really gradual or developmental. Um, they're just different ways that different people might approach it at different times. Um, depending on different situations or approaches. Um, so some of these might resonate for you. And I encourage you to, uh, if you have teachings that resonate, like I, re I memorized many years ago those first three sentences because I didn't know what they meant, but I memorized them and, they, and then they stuck with me. And I actually still have them in my mind years later when this, when this occurred to me. So you might just pick out something that sticks for you and just kind of carry it around and you know, check it out and see, see how you might work with it. Even if you don't, maybe especially if you don't understand it. It's great when we don't understand things. Um, it's also a sort of a something for the mind to do to anchor itself. And I always remember um, someone once asked uh, Sojin Roshi, what do you think about in Zazen? And I'm sure he was going to say, I don't think in Zazen. But he didn't. He said, I give myself Zazen instruction. So please give yourself good instructions, whatever they are. 
give yourself good, wholesome instructions to encourage yourself in practice. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.